Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about last night's Republican National Convention, and then we're joined by Brandon Benskin, who started a new business called Daydream Supply Company. You're listening to The Common Good. everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on what can only be described as a really hot Tuesday afternoon. Uh, but it's a big Tuesday afternoon, Ian. Other people might not care about this, but you and I saw each other in person for the first time since March today. Uh, that was an enjoyable experience today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I set myself up there. <laughs> you really did. I like was trying not to go that route, but I couldn't. You set him up and I knock him down, Brian from. There you go. Well, people will be happy to know that you look the same and I look the same. So it's nice to see you again today. Uh, some people can be really confused. Like, aren't you doing a show every day together? As a reminder, since the pandemic started, we're both uh, still in our homes doing it. And uh, but but it was good to see each other. Uh, As a reminder, you can find uh, all the articles we talk about on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Go ahead there, and uh, we would love to hear your opinions on the various things we put up there. You can also find old shows at 1160hope.com. And, of course, get our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribe, rate, review, and uh, we are thankful to all of you who do that. And I want to start in this first part of the show here just talking about two of the bigger stories uh, culturally right now, let's start with what's going on up in Kenosha uh, after uh, the shooting of, I believe his name is Jacob Blake. Uh, as a reminder, if you have not seen the footage, Jacob Blake uh, and the police, he was shot seven times. I believe it came out today that he is paralyzed from the waist down. And uh, it has led to uh, obviously a lot of reaction, but also uh, a lot of protest, a lot of unrest up in Kenosha. And uh, a lot of people saying, hey, there's more to the story than you know. A lot of people saying it doesn't matter what else there is to the story. He was shot seven times. Just wondering again, where are you at as you as you watch yet again another story like this, as you kind of take this in online and on TV? Just kind of your thoughts on this. I feel like didn't I mean, we talked about this yesterday, didn't we? We did. Yeah, but it just keeps escalating here, continuing what's going up here, uh, up there in Kenosha. What do you uh what do you think is like the primary escalation? I think uh, lack of answers and people still just being angry. And so but that that this has happened, that there's been another incident. And uh, it, what's what's a little bit crazy is to see it in a smaller town like Kenosha. I know Kenosha is not small, but comparatively to Minneapolis or Chicago or something, something that we we know we've been close to here in Kenosha to see it going on. But but tension seems really high and it will be interesting to see. Uh, where this goes. We know with the incident with George Floyd and others that things escalated nationwide. And and I don't know yet that we know whether this is going to escalate nationwide or kind of be more localized in Kenosha. But just a sad story as you read. Thankfully, it seems like he's serious but stable right now and hopefully uh, will be okay. Uh, But yeah, just another sad situation. So uh, yeah. The other story I wanted to touch on was the Republican National Convention that went off last night. Did you watch any of the Republican National Convention last night? A little bit, yeah. A little bit. Here's what struck me as I was watching the Republican National Convention, uh, because it re- I had the same thought last week watching the Democratic National Convention, uh, was how, uh, how else to put this, really dark and angry. Uh, and so last night in the Republican National Convention, uh, there were some particular ones where literally the message was 
if the Democrats get elected, uh, there will be now be gang members living next door to you. There will be all of your freedoms will go away. They'll be rioting and looting everywhere in the streets. And then I remember last week uh, there was some that you might think that it can't get worse than these last four years. But if you reelect Donald Trump, it will get worse. And there was a lot of my sense. I'm wondering what you think. A lot of playing to uh, the negative of the other side. If you elect them, it's going to be worse. So therefore elect us as opposed to elect me because here's my vision for the country. Here's what I want to see happen. And so I'm wondering if you felt the same way. And, and the bigger question is, if you did feel that way, uh, why? Do you feel that to be a persuasive argument? Uh, it's going to be bad if you elect that person or reelect that person. So therefore you should elect us. Yeah, I don't know that this is necessarily a new game. Uh, maybe it just seems all the more heightened because of everything else that's going on in the world. I do think that it's interesting because it seems that by most metrics, Biden is still like fairly centrist in the liberal camp. But it felt like there was a whole lot of accusations about him being far, far left. And he's a socialist. Actually, I heard something interesting today that part of part of what the strategy had been, they assumed that they'd be you know, combating Bernie Sanders. And so they had to kind of pivot some of their messaging. So rather than, you know, calling the candidate himself a, uh, a far left radical socialist, it, it uh, more shifted towards he's being controlled by the far left radical socialist, you know, puppeteering kind of thing. Like, well, Biden's just a puppet for this uh, machine. That's going to exactly all the things that you're talking about. It is, Unfortunate that it feels like both sides have done have taken sort of similar tacks. I, I can't say that I'm all that surprised. And there was there was some vision. Casting. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't feel like it was all mudslinging. There were certainly some aspects of hope and future thought and progress and all that. But, yeah, it, it did feel like both both camps spent a fair amount of time sort of dismantling the, the opposing side. And, you know, maybe that's tactical maybe that's strategic maybe it's actually effective I, I don't really know i don't know donald trump jr last night said it's almost like this election is shaping up to be church work and school versus rioting looting and vandalism well i mean that's yeah there you go that that is quite the statement and then there is even last night there was a video of that that couple from st louis i believe it was that that drew the guns on the black lives matter protesters by their house um, I did enjoy Tim Scott last night. I found him to be different and him to be a little more inspiring. But uh, but I, I do wonder if you think it is compelling. Is it compelling for you, I guess, is that rather than have you speak for other people to be reminded of what's more compelling for you? Uh, here's my vision for the future or here's the danger of their future on the other side. Which one is more compelling for you and why do you think it does go towards here's the danger of the other side. I'm always going to land vision for the future with a caveat though. I know that a lot of people who consider themselves visioneers, right. Or visionaries uh, can come across like they're, they're not tuned into the like legitimate problems. So it's like, Oh, all they do is talk big picture and they don't really understand how much work that's going to take or how many resources that's going to require. I do think that there's a, there's an asterisk on the vision casting, you know, cause you and I are in church world and a lot of our training, to be honest, probably included some level of like mission, vision values. How do you actually communicate these things? Which, you know, to me, I can, even like in terms of church conferences, there certainly has been seasons in my life, right? I was just like, it was like vision fatigue. Like I'm, I'm, I'm yes. done with the rah, rah. I just, I just want to like 
love our congregation. You know what I mean? Um, So yeah, I'll always uh, veer toward that camp, but I've certainly like at my last church, we had a a psychologist that was a part of our our community. And she would always talk about, man, the, the thing that will, will always be the tipping point to keep from people from inaction to action is going to be fear. It's going to be fear or discomfort. And part of vision casting, she was asserting part of good vision casting is to make the current reality so uncomfortable that they have no choice, but to like step into this reality that you're painting for them. And she, she always made a pretty compelling case. Like it can't just be all look, this will be so great over there. You have to, you have to also create a dissatisfaction with like the current reality, which is part of what I think both camps were trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's election season. It's still coming. The Republican National Convention continues tonight. Melania Trump, amongst others, is going to be speaking tonight. Uh, I'm sure you can find that in all sorts of different places. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Brandon Benskin. He is a worship and youth pastor at Community Christian Church. And he has also started a new business called Daydream Supply Company, not only to start a business, but to use his business to help fight human trafficking. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating story. Brandon's awesome. going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. Rose, excited? when we get this talk to other other pastors, other ministry leaders from the area. And with that in mind, we are excited to join and to be joined by Brandon Benskin. Brandon, thanks for joining us today. Man, it's such a pleasure to be back um, talking with you guys. Yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time. For uh, those in our audience who don't know you, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, um, my name is obviously Brandon, and I am a worship pastor and a youth pastor in the area in Chicagoland. And um, actually get to work with Ian quite a bit at Community Christian. And so mm-hmm. uh, definitely a familiar conversation to have with Ian as we're talking through some different ministry things. So, um, but yeah, and then, you know, uh, my passions, obviously we're going to be talking about my business, but um, a big passion right now as we're talking about um, human trafficking here as as we get into conversation and, and how we can be the change in the world that we want to see is mm-hmm. something that I'm really excited about right now. I love that, man. And it's, it's probably no surprise, but I've, I've always just loved your passion for people and for justice and for ministry. And I love that this is sort of the newest iteration of you kind of taking those passions and putting it to good use. And I, I'd be curious to know in general, kind of a two part question. One, why start a business? And two, why start a business in the midst of a pandemic? <laughs> yeah. I think that that question two kind of answers question one a little bit <laughs> um, because, you know, a lot of with, you know, living in a uh, post COVID world, um, you know, as we, as we are, uh, my job changed significantly with the mm. times and, and how um, we do ministry and, and, you know, you know, pre COVID um, we were kind of not only doing Sunday morning stuff, but I had stuff all throughout the week, including weeknights that, you know, we were meeting in person or doing small groups or whatever the responsibilities are. Cause I, I am, I was at a smaller location of community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, post COVID that's drastically changed because we, we can't do all the meetings that we, we have been doing. And so my weeknights all of a sudden were very open. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so as a three on the Enneagram for all my Enneagram fans out there, I am a three, Um, I get really bored when I don't have things to do. And so um, at night when I was sitting at home watching TV with my wife, just realizing, huh, I would would have had filled my schedule tonight with something. 
um, what does it look like now in a post-COVID world for me to be a pastor and, and care for people? Um, and, and so that kind of was what started uh, this, this dream as um, is implied in my, the name of my company, uh, Daydream Supply Company. Um, I started daydreaming about what, what I could do with, you know, some of the spare moments I had at night um, and, and just create a reality where people could, could care for others um, in, in the ease from their home. Um, and I kind of do the heavy lifting for the ministry part of, of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's called Daydream Supply Company. Tell us uh, yep. more, what is what is Daydream Supply Company? What is the business? What is it that you're doing? Yeah, so, um, and that's kind of a, a fun subject too. You know, um, the reason I kind of got into dreaming about what I could do with a business and helping a nonprofit, um, if you look around at some of the other um, companies that, that support nonprofits, um, it, it's often, I don't know, as, as a bunch of men on this call, it's kind of geared towards women. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, hmm. um, but some of my favorite places where, um, you know, I, I like to go, especially in the past where I've wanted to kind of support um, different companies, especially that support human trafficking, I've always had to buy stuff for my wife. Um, rather than like buy buy something for myself that I could uh, that I could use that supporting uh, a non for profit uh, through mm-hmm. a company and so um, so yeah so my dream kind of started with with men's clothing um, and designing things that you know I I'm really passionate about men's clothing before I got into ministry I was in retail and I love retail and um, and so that was where it kind of started was designing men's clothing so that men could could be a part of the the change in the world they want to see and. Um, and, uh, you know, make purchases that, that they're knowing that they're not just buying something for themselves, but they're also, uh, you know, making a change in the world. And so, um, I think, you know, that's kind of where it started, but then it kind of also branched out to some of my other passions. Cause I, I do get excited about, uh, designing women's clothes. So I have women's clothes on my website and I do home goods. So I've got some pillows um, that I've got on my website, as well as mugs and phone cases and stickers. And so um, there's kind of a, a wide range of uh, different apparel and home goods on my website that I'm pretty excited about. Um, and so, you know, anyway, anywhere from t-shirts to hats uh, in the apparel side of things, even bags on there. And so if you're interested in any kind of home good or, you know, apparel uh, item you can kind of go on my website and, and maybe support uh, this this mission to help fight human trafficking um in our world and so that's that's what my awesome. business is all about yeah i love that man i'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about where did the passion for fighting human trafficking begin and can you can you talk to us a little bit about what what kind of a problem it actually is my guess is that a lot of people yeah. Maybe their their gut is, oh, yeah, it's a problem, but it's like a problem over there somewhere. Yeah. And when you look at the statistics, yep. not just here in the United States, but like even right here in DuPage County and Cook County, yep. uh, right. it's, it's pretty horrifying. So, can you, yeah, talk to us a little bit about where that passion came from and why, why it matters yeah. so much. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it was kind of a reality that I was stepping into um, once I started college. Because, um, you know, I, I grew up in middle of nowhere, Illinois, um, and... It, like if anything bad happened, you knew it right away because that's how small the town was. And so um, I, I didn't really live in the reality of, of what most of our country lives in, in, mm-hmm. in urban settings until I went to college. I, I moved to St. Louis for my first year of college and, um, and having the conversation at my school um, that, you know, my friends who were, who were women um, 
weren't allowed to go places by themselves. You know, that was the conversation. Like they, they had to have a sit down with us and, and say, you know, if, if you're female, like you should take someone with you. If it's, if it's a friend or a boyfriend, whatever that is, you know, just make sure you're not alone and um, you're with a group of people. Um, it was such like a hard conversation for me because it, as, as a man, that's not something I always have to think about, you know? Um, and so just living in the reality that, you know, my friends at school, they, they had to specifically the women at my school had to live in the reality of, of having to change their lifestyle or, or the way that they were, um, perceiving how safe they were, um, based on this, this horrible fact that they could get trafficked in St. Louis. And, and that, that was something um, we talked a lot about uh, at school um, as a Bible college was, you know, St. Louis is half halfway uh, in between the coasts. So that's why St. Louis is such a hotspot for human trafficking, because traffickers can get um, either people in St. Louis and get them to California um, or to the East Coast very quickly, or they can take people from the coast, meet in St. Louis to trade them to somebody on the other coast. And so um, that was kind of a, a hard conversation for me uh, going into college. Um, but also when I transferred, I, I transferred to Judson University later on in college. And um, and that kind of uh, brought on the, the fact that I knew someone whose girlfriend almost gotten taken in Chicago. Um, wow. And... And so that kind of was the, the two-parter of why this kind of gave me a passion for this specific subject. And, mm. and we can get into some st- st- statistics here in a second. Yeah. yeah, that's a great segue. You're listening to Brandon Benskin. He has started a company, besides being a worship uh, pastor and a youth pastor uh, at Community Christian Church, he has also started a new business called Daydream Supply Company, uh, much of it going towards fighting this uh, this terrible thing of human trafficking. And he's going to stick with us for another segment here after the break. We're going to talk more about his business and specifically, how does it help fight human trafficking? That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. We are joined again by Brandon Benskin. Brandon is a worship and youth pastor here in the Chicagoland area, but is also in his spare time here, opened up a new business called Daydream Supply Company uh, that helps very creatively, helps against this huge issue, helps fight this huge issue of human trafficking. And Brandon, before we get into some of the issues around human trafficking, I'm just curious, how does Daydream Supply Company actually help? How do the proceeds go? How does the company help fight human trafficking? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, what what I have planned to do is for all of my regular uh, profits, 20% will be donated to International Justice Mission, which if you haven't looked into International Justice Mission, I highly recommend looking into them, even if it's like you just want to bypass my my products completely and just go straight to the source for International Justice Mission to donate. I, I would highly suggest it um, mm-hmm. because of all the work that they're doing. Um, on their side of things, they not only help people who have come out of trafficking, but they also work in the legal systems of, of a bunch of cut countries to try to change the laws and keep people who who are traffickers either in prison or, or, or put them in prison for the crimes that they've committed against humanity. And so um, they're an awesome, awesome mission. So 20% of my profits for my business um, go to them for my regular uh, profits, but for when we're coming up on, on Christmas, I'm going to be re- releasing some Christmas items as well, that 50% of that profit will go to International Justice Mission. 
Awesome. That's awesome, man. I, I want to mention it a couple of times this segment. If you want to learn more, you can go to daydreamsupplyco.com. That's daydreamsupplyco.com. Also, Facebook and Instagram, we are Daydream Co. And uh, you already, I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's frustrating the word I want to use. You're good at so many things. It is annoying. Uh, <laughs> because it seems like everything you put your hands on, I'm like, oh, of course, he would be good at starting a company and having this sort of aesthetic perspective. And I, I would love for you to speak a little bit to what it's like to launch something like this, because I, my guess is there are other people listening and they're like, okay, maybe I have different passions, but I've been on the fence about actually really taking the plunge into like launching that thing. And I think you're very good at actually speaking to people's like innate desires, you know, and kind of, kind of, speaking courage or hope or challenge even to them what would you say to the person who like up until this point they're like second guessing or they're wondering if it's the right time what would you say to the person who's wanted to take the plunge like this but hasn't actually done it yet yeah that's that's really that's a really good conversation um the i it's it's kind of been crazy the last and it's probably been about two and a half weeks since i started kind of hinting that i was opening something up um, and then just the whole process in the last two and a half weeks of actually getting everything done for my launch has been kind of crazy. Um, and you know, if, if you're listening in a different, different state than Illinois, of course it might look a little different to, to start a business than, hmm. um, what I've done, but, um, you know, a, a big part of it is the, the legal, uh, things that come with it. And so, um, I think if you're interested in so- something that like I'm doing where you want to to help against a, an injustice or, or donate some of your profits to a, a nonprofit. Um, you know, you find something that people are passionate about that you are passionate about. Um, that's kind of been the, 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 the thing that burned, burned my fire a little uh, brighter right now was um, unfortunately uh, uh, it seems like human trafficking has become um, something that people are using as a deterrent to care about other issues, hmm. um, which is super unfortunate for me because, you know, I, I think you can care about multiple things and you don't have to just care about one thing. Um, but on social media, I was getting kind of frustrated that that people were almost using uh, human trafficking as a secondhand excuse to not care about other issues. Um, and so this was kind of me going, OK, well, put your money where your mouth is if you're going to uh, kind of talk about it. Uh, things that way on social media as if you actually care about the issue then then actually care about it and i'll give you an avenue to care about it um and so that was kind of what started my fire was you know kind of looking at the the different issues that are kind of hot 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 topics right now um and obviously i've cared about human trafficking for a while and so if there's something for you out there that that you're really passionate about and and it's a, a big topic by all means, use that as kind of your fire to um, start right now because it, it's if there's any time <laughs> that you start a business, it's it's now because our world does look different. And uh, kind of touching back to where I was at um, for my last segment that I did with uh, Ian uh, when I was here, I think almost a year ago now, um, my life was kind of about, about slowing down. And I always laugh because... Um, America kind of was forced to slow down with me all of a sudden. Mm. And, um, and so our lives do look a lot different um, than they did uh, pre COVID. And, and we do have a little more time because our world is a lot slower. And so um, use that extra time instead of watching Netflix to actually make a difference, you know, and, um, and actually, you know, follow your passions and, um, and do the research of what it, what it means to, to get a, 
sales tax license from the state of Illinois mm. and um, and go through those steps of actually of doing it because really the only thing that's blocking you from doing it right now is is the hesitation to. Mm. Um, and so it, there's so much freedom in our, our, especially in our country to do things that you're passionate about. And so um, you can and you should and um, you have the power and the ability to as a person, especially as Christians, if, if you're professing in Christ, he has given you the strength that you need. And so um, allow him to be that for you and and, mm-hmm. and be the change that he wants to see as well. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in his people, even in people that um, didn't know Christ as the Savior, he wanted their lives to be better here on earth. And so mm-hmm. he cared about them intimately while he was walking earth. And, and he has that power in you to do the same thing. And so um, yeah, so you have the ability and, and the the will. You can do it. Just do That's it. Good, man. That's good. So, Brandon, this might be an unfair question with only two and a half, two minutes left here. But you give, <laughs> for some people might be like, what is what is human trafficking? Could you give a thumbnail yeah. sketch like what it is and also why people should care? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, unfortunately, it, it does affect a lot of people. Um, here's a little snap, uh, snippet from uh, International Justice Missions. Um website, it says there are 40, uh, 40 plus million people in slavery right now wow. in our world, um, which is a huge percentage of our world, um, which is just kind of crazy. But I mean, if, even if you look at what modern slavery is, obviously a big part of that is is sex trafficking. Um, but one in, in four people who are in modern day slavery are children. Um, and if we are going to be people that, that care about not only humanity, but also the, the most um, uh, innocent of our of population, which are children, the, the people that actually can't defend themselves in these situations. Um, and man, we have to care about this issue because, like I said, one in four, which is an insane, insane amount of children. Um, and I've even read statistics about American children that there are 300,000 kids that are at risk of being trafficked in America. Um, and so, um, it's not just something that, you know, you see across in, in, let's say, I don't know, uh, places in the East, um, uh, in, in, in Asian countries or African countries, of course it's happening there, but it's also happening here in our country and with our children. Um, and so, uh, in, in other countries, it's not only sex slavery, but it's also um, people getting uh, duped by loan sharks and, and having to work insane hours for no pay. And, um, you know, there's there's totally different ways of even like the forcing young children to get married. Um, that's a big issue, too, um, where where they're they're kind of forced into the slavery of, of a marriage that um, one isn't beneficial because they might be too young for it, but also that they, they didn't want in the first place. And so um, that that's even kind of uh, labeled as modern day slavery that we're not acknowledging as well. And so, mm. um, and so there's, there's definitely a lot of it in our world, which is why there's a lot to care about, but that's why I'm creating this company so that we can donate to a company that, that actually is fighting it. Um, that's actually doing good work in the world. Um, and, and, but also creating products that we can use here in our homes. Absolutely. Well, that other voice here is uh, Brandon Benskin. He is a worship and youth pastor here in the Chicagoland area, but 
uh, has also started a new business called the Daydream Supply Company. That's Daydream Supply Company. Let me encourage all of you out there to go to daydreamsupplycompany.com. That's daydreamsupplyco.com. You can also find them on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Daydream Company. Brandon, thank you. We really hope this goes well for you. We look forward to hearing more. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Over at the Gospel Coalition, Brett McCracken uh, wrote an interesting article called Cool Christianity is Still a Bad Idea. What's going on in this article by Mr. McCracken? Well, before we get into that, I also want to mention it is National Banana Split Day. Oh, yes. I will, I will <laughs> indulge in one of those. Also, National Secondhand Wardrobe Day. I just thought you would really want to really want to know about that. And that has nothing to do with this article whatsoever. I just want to get that in before the show is done. Um, yeah. National yeah. Secondhand Wardrobe Day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, okay. uh, I think Macklemore will be performing his. <laughs> we should we should <laughs> begin. That I, am much more, I am much more interested in celebrating National Banana Split Day than I am Secondhand uh, Wardrobe Day. I'll, I'll, maybe maybe we'll combine the two. But if I have to choose, I'm going Banana Split. Well, I'm probably not allowed to mention that it's ash- it's also National Whiskey Sour Day today. I probably I probably can't mention that on the air, can I? Will you be uh, how will you be celebrating National Whiskey Sour Day? I think you know. With a banana split? <laughs> exactly. In, in my secondhand clothing. Exactly. There you go. There you uh, go. All right. So Brett McCracken, he's, uh, I think he's senior editor at TGC. He's, he's done a bunch of cool stuff that we've talked mm-hmm. about in the last year. He said, at the beginning of the 21st century, relevance became the prevailing buzzword in Western evangelical Christianity. Oh, let me just stop real quick. When you were uh, doing undergrad work, was relevance a word that was like pretty, pretty hot at the time? Oh my goodness! Relevant and organic. If you could get those two words into a sentence, yeah, right, that was it. Absolutely, relevance. Uh, yes, for sure. Well, he goes on. He says, sensing new urgency to make the gospel more appealing to the next generation, which polls show we're leaving faith in greater numbers. Pastors, church leaders, and Christian influencers tried to rebrand faith. This was the era of Relevant magazine's launch, Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz, and Rob Bell's ascent to as a sort of evangelical Steve Jobs. It was the moment when plaid, skinny jeans, beards, and tattoos became the pastor's unofficial uniform. It was a public relations effort to pitch a less legalistic, friendlier to culture, emergent faith that was far from dust, uh, the dusty religion of your grandparents. Emergent's another one of those words that I feel like I was like really warned about, and then it just like disappeared. There was all That's this right. like almost fear mongering, like hey, everyone, watch out for the emergent, and then like I sneezed, and then it was over. Like there was no, I was like, what, what happened to emergent? So he says, uh, I chronicled this awkward era in painstaking detail in hipster Christianity when church and cool collide, which released 10 years ago this month. In many ways, the book is a quaint relic by now, a time capsule of a certain segment of evangelicalism at the turn of the millennium. But the book's dated nature proves the point I was trying to make that, quote, cool Christianity is, if not an oxymoron, at least an exercise in futility. A relevance focused Christianity sows the seeds of its own obsolescence. Rather than rescuing or reviving Christianity, hipster faith shrinks it to the level of consumer commodity as fickle and fleeting as the latest runway fashion. To locate Christianity's relevance in its ability to find favor among the cool kids, just the latest in a long history of evangelical obsession with its image, is seriously misguided. Here's a few reasons why. Uh, I'll just stop to ask you briefly, 
how have you kind of grappled with this question of relevance? Because I don't, I don't think that Four Corners' goal is to be irrelevant, right? Correct. We want people to hate us and to be completely turned off by our branding and style. Amen. Like that's that I don't think is your goal, but I, I also don't sense that you've like you've put relevance as the paramount goal of right. your community either. How, how have you kind of grappled with that? Yeah, part of it is. Like even that description, and, I, and when we were starting our church, I went to enough church planting conferences that that when they use like the skinny jeans, tattoo, uh, you know, beer, whatever, and I that was just never me. Like literally, yeah. you know me well enough to be like jeans, hoodie, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and so part of it was that I knew that that was never me, but I I also think that uh, you know you do you want to be relevant in the sense of people feel comfortable. Um, but I, I do think as a church, we kind of said, here's our strength. Here's how we're just going to be, uh, and, and being kind and being, uh, being welcoming to people and whatever else is going to make us relevant. And it is funny when you mentioned, like, I'm not going to be, you probably didn't think to yourself, I want to be irrelevant and be, make people angry. There are churches that kind of go down that path. <laughs> like we're going to be yeah, right. the complete other side, but uh, relevance is a difficult uh, idea because you do want to be relevant, but yet we're also, the Bible talks about us not just being different, but being weird in some levels, right? Like we're going to look different. And so you do have to wrestle with that uh, to where you can be relevant and where uh, where maybe not. So yeah, I would say that's the way we did. So you want to get into this, this list of reasons why it's misguided? Uh, yeah, he says, uh, hold on, let me just go down here. He says, as I write the final chapter, it's problematic to assume that true relevance means constantly keeping up with the trends and meeting culture uh, where it is at. Uh, he said, the mindset assumes no one will listen to us if we aren't loud and edgy. Uh, no one will take us seriously if we aren't uh, if we aren't conversant with culture and no one will find Jesus uh, interesting unless he is made to fit the particulars of the zeitgeist. I love that word. Uh, but this sort of relevance is defined chiefly and inextricably by the one thing Christianity resolutely defeats, uh, and that's impermanence. Things that are permanent are not faddish or fickle or trendy. They are solid, true relevance lasts. Let me stop there. I think that is things that are permanent are not faddish or fickle or trendy. This whole idea of Christianity being impermanent uh, and solid, uh, how does that in your mind kind of play into this conversation here? You know, I think it's interesting because I don't think that a lot of people that it's all subjective, like what someone understands or labels as trendy or hip or striving to be relevant. Like even you think the difference between how churches look out here in the suburbs versus in the city of Chicago. I don't think that some of those churches look different than ours do because they're trying above all right. else to be trendy or relevant or seeker friendly. I think this is kind of the vibe of like the neighborhood and the city that they're at. And that's fine. That's where it gets a little tricky for me because it can be easy to point a finger at what we perceive to be trendy when someone's probably looking at what Four Corners or Community is doing as trendy based right. on their perceptions or based on their context. Even just the north, south, east, west of our country, what someone's doing on the west coast, someone's doing, you know, there's a church on the beach, right, is going to look way different than yeah. – a church in you, you know, back in your hometown. And it doesn't right. necessarily mean that their motives or objectives are any different, but they're, this is where, this is for me, the relevance versus contextualizing dichotomy mm -hmm. is really tricky because what is 
just good cultural hermeneutic, good contextualizing where we're actually at versus like you were saying, like I just was never the skinny jean tatted flannel guy. Well, like for me, I, I actually kind of was some of those things. Right. But it was normal. For you. But it was yeah. normal for me, whether I was a pastor or not. That's like how I would have been dressing anyway. You know, like, does that mean that I'm, you know, I've, I've bended a need to the, the, the pagan god of relevance or like <laughs> being authentic? You know what I mean? Like that, that becomes a little tricky to navigate. Absolutely. And I think the key is uh, for pastors, but also just for all of us out there is like, just be true to like your personality and who you are. I remember when I first started preaching regularly. That was the days of Mark Driscoll and others kind of preaching angry and long 45, 50 minutes. And I remember listening to him a lot going, all right, I got to preach like Driscoll or I got to preach like Chandler or Francis Chan or whatever else. And it felt phony. You're just like, well, that's not me at all. <laughs> like, right. And you start getting into your style a little bit. And again, I don't think there's anything like you said wrong with being relevant to the culture around you, trying to reach people. But it's when it's th- that is the driving force where things can go. Sideways, let me end with how he ends. He says, better than the awkward desperation of cool Christianity is the quiet confidence of faithful Christianity. More compelling than any celebrity pastor uh, committed hand to the plow is committed hand to the plow presence that creates lasting change for the better in lives and communities. If there's anything I've come to see in the decades since I wrote Hipster Christianity, it's this. A faith received is more trustworthy and transformative than a faith reconceived. So that's uh, from the Gospel Coalition, Brett McCracken. You can find that up at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next segment, you know that we had to do it. We're going to talk Jerry Falwell Jr. next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hopefully. Coming up this hour, we're going to discuss Jerry Falwell Jr. and then pastors on social media. You're listening to The Common Good. Friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us here for this second hour. Mm-hmm. Man, I, I said this in the first hour. This is hard-hitting, breaking news. It's really hot outside, man. Really hot and going to get hotter tomorrow. Yeah, you you like the weather more than any person that I know. It is. Did you, you, go, like- for a, did, did you go for a run today, though? No, I normally would during lunch, and I was having lunch with you. Uh, what about tomorrow? Uh, r- run tomorrow when it's supposed to be ninety-eight degrees tomorrow. I've I've run in hotter. I listen. This is not. There's no pat on the back here at all. I just have to stay consistent, or I'll I'll just fall way off the the habit. I just gotta keep going. So I I will look like I'm done. I guarantee when I run tomorrow, like cars will slow down and ask if I'm okay. Like that. <laughs> that's what that's what I'll visibly be looking like as I run. It won't be majestic. It'll be horrific. I just have to keep doing it. Uh, the persistence there has always impressed me because years ago, I just chose just falling off. <laughs> Listen, no, no judgment, man. I'm not looking forward to it at all. There are certain people that are like, man, I love running. Like, what was the uh, when I run, I feel his pleasure. Like, yes. I'm like, wow, I have not ever experienced that phenomenon at all. <laughs> You're not part of chariots of fire. That's no, funny. not at all. Uh, well, speaking of falling well, uh, uh, did you see wow. that one? Wow. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, he has, uh, yesterday when we were finishing the show, he had word came out that he had resigned. Uh, and then word came out that he hadn't resigned. 
And now word has come out again today that he has resigned yet again. And what was going on was some negotiating uh, over his severance package. But uh, I we just have to do it. Let me catch people up on the Jerry Falwell Jr. story. He has had many problems along the way here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the most recent one that came out was he spoke of an affair that his wife had been having with a pool boy in Miami. And then the sordid story came out yesterday that he was involved in the affair as well in just some kind of seedy ways. And it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And so after the firestorm on social media about a month ago, uh, other racist things he has done and said, other things, he finally was let go, uh, but not without a fight. So he was let go of this morning or he resigned this morning with a severance package that I'd prefer not know how much it is. Uh, but wondering, it's it's uh, a story, Ian, we've talked about a lot. And uh, I don't know. I, part of me is just like good riddance. See you later. But you're also sad. You're also sad for a an important university out there prayerful that this is a new chapter for the university. Where are you right now on the Jerry Falwell Jr. story? So we posted uh, just an hour or two ago from Relevant. The headline that they shared was, uh, it's a relief, Falwell told a reporter. The quote that keeps going through my mind this morning is Martin Luther King Jr. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. So we share that and people are commenting. But I actually really did appreciate Cassandra's comment. She said, I know it makes for a comical headline, but honestly, This type of behavior is screaming out that he needs help. It's very sad to watch him devolve. Mm. I I think that that actually encapsulates some of how I'm feeling. It would be different, I think, if this really hit close to home in terms of like, if that was my alma mater or, you know, there's there's certain things that distance you and I, I think, from the story. I mean, not entirely. You and I are both firmly planted like in the Christian world of which – you and I both have friends that are pointing at things like this saying, see, this is why I don't ever want to be a part of a church or Christianity in general. And, you, you know, you can make the excuse that he, you know, he claims he said publicly, I'm not a pastor. That's not my role. Um, but now the third or fourth day of us covering this, I do have to admit, it does make me sad. I listened to a little bit of the audio yesterday yeah. between um, him and his wife and this, this alleged pool boy story. And even then I was like, gosh, that, this is so much more twisted than I think I realized. And again, you know, we live in this world now of like clickbait, what's going to get shares and posts and comments and all that. And that's, and that's all well and good. But when you really get down to it, you're like, okay, there is some like deeply rooted, embedded, like brokenness and sorrow. And I have no doubt that he's hurt people. And I'm not saying physically necessarily, but there's like damage that's been done. And I'm not in any way saying, he should be let off the hook for any of that. I don't think anyone who's listened to any of our segments on this would get that from either of our responses. But right. as Christ followers, at some level, I think it does need to also break our heart. Like, what happened to you, man? Like, how did you get to this point? This didn't just happen on a dime, right? This is a, this has been a a slow or maybe medium paced devolving into whatever's you know, and now it's just coming to light. So that part. It makes me sad not only for them, it makes me sad, to be honest, um, for the name of Christ, that a lot of people like this will be the thing that they remember for a long, long time. Well, well before any of like the great things that churches or Christian institutions or Christian leaders are doing, this will be the thing that kind of gets placed at the top of the deck in terms of their their recollection of Christian behavior. And that that also makes me sad for, for a whole different set of reasons. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's just uh, it's just such a sad story, uh, as you said, uh, that like you said, it, it just um, for a lot of people, this frames Christianity. I, you can't turn on cable news right now or even the Today Show this morning. And it was in its first block talking about Jerry Falwell. This is not just a Christian story. This is not right. just an evangelicalism story, an evangelical story right now. I would ask you this. And we've had this. There's time to do this. But let me just kind of first blush. And we did this with James McDonald's story or Bill Hybels or whatever else along the way. Uh, what's the takeaway? What do you, what can, right? You, you don't always just want to point the finger. Sometimes you want to go, man, how did he end up there? Like you said, and what can I learn from that? How can I use this, this story even to protect myself a little bit? Uh, what's the takeaway for you, if at all, of this story that's really been going on for years now, but now the fall, no pun intended, of Jerry Falwell? What's kind of your takeaway from it? You know, we did a segment was this this week or last week the uh, integrity gap this week, I think yep, yep, yep. I think that's been one and again I've shared a little bit of my my own story on the show you know when I was first hired out of undergrad the guy that hired me was removed in a pretty dramatic way not pretty in a very dramatic way and as a young kid right out of college I remember watching watching all of that kind of implode and Again, I was like 22. I remember like making some really, really strong convictions to myself and then to other people vocally saying, hey, I, I'm not in trouble yet, but I know for certain, though, that I, I'm not immune to any of this like anybody is. I, I need you to really be in my mm. face to keep me accountable. Like in a weird way, experiencing so much of this so early into my ministry life kind of served as a warning. Not not that I can quite say that I'm grateful for it because a lot of people were really like harmed and damaged yeah. as a result. But there was something about being 22, watching someone like throw away not only just their job, but their career, their entire trajectory because of, you know, a number of pretty dramatic moral failings. And we're thinking, okay, I need to make decisions and steps now to not even get close to whatever place saw that as permissible and that kind of um, conviction. I, I am, I'm grateful, you know, in a, in a very weird way that that happened so early on because it helped me kind of set up some parameters ahead of time before it ever became an issue. So yeah, I think how, who we surround ourselves with and the kind of accountability that we have to seek out uh, in order to, to continue on the trajectory of this long obedience in the same direction, man, it doesn't happen accidentally. Yeah. Robert Jeffress, uh, pastor at First Baptist Dallas, he told the Washington Post, the allegations, if true, he said about um, Falwell, he said, should be a warning of the destructive power of sin. And that's yet mm -hmm. again, another example of this. And uh, again, be praying for Liberty University. It's an important college. It's a, a, a yeah. uh, kind of a, a flagship college in evangelicalism uh, that, you know, you'd be praying that as they search for a new president, how do they go forward from this. And uh, like you said, it could be easy to take Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, take some sort of joy in finally his downfall. And I don't think we should be doing that. I think be praying yeah. for them. And hopefully there now comes a season of repentance and end of new growth. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about a Netflix show called Cuties and the uh, controversy around it. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. We're glad to have you joining us today. Uh, something I've enjoyed, Ian, over the last couple of weeks is you uh, sharing with us the, the random 
uh, holidays that every day is like you told us earlier, today's national banana split day, mm-hmm. uh, because then I use them on my kids and they've been kind of impressed every now and then. I'm like, do you know what today is? <laughs> so I'm going to use banana split day today, Please but do you do. Have a- it's also, uh, it's also independence day for Uruguay. So that's, that's, that's not a joke. That's real. Oh, why are we working today? That feels like that should be a holiday. <laughs> I'll, I'll be sure to send that email as soon as we're done. <laughs> I would like a comp day for Uruguay and uh, Independence Day. <laughs> it's very important to me. Yeah. Uh, so I was reading some articles uh, last night about a show that I was unfamiliar with, a movie uh, that's supposed to be on Netflix called Cuties. So let me give you a little bit of background, and then I'm wondering just your thoughts. It says, uh, this is a Christian today, different than Christianity today. This is a Christian oh. today. Over 200,000 people have signed a petition on change.org calling on Netflix to pull a controversial French film that critics say sexualizes children. Uh, Cuties tells the story of an 11-year-old girl who rebels against her conservative family to join uh, a dance crew. Netflix was forced to apologize after a sexualized poster was used in promotion of the film. While the poster is cropped to show only the bottom half of the girls, the postures are suggestive. They said, we're deeply sorry for the inappropriate artwork that we used for cuties, it was not okay, nor was it representative of this French film, which won an award at Sundance. We've now updated the pictures and description. The petition, though, on change.org has been signed by 226,000 people in just three days. It says the movie and show is disgusting as it sexualizes an 11-year-old for the viewing pleasure of pedophiles and also negatively influences our children. There's no need for this kind of content in that age group especially when sex trafficking and pedophilia are so rampant. There is no excuse. This is dangerous uh, content. The director has said that her intention behind the film was concern about the sexualization of young girls. She said, I saw that some very young girls were followed by 400,000 people on social media, and I tried to understand why. There are no particular reasons besides the fact that they had posted sexy or at least revealing pictures. That is what had brought them fame. Today, the sexier and the more objectified a woman is, the more value she has in the eyes of social media. And when you're 11, you don't really understand all these mechanisms, but you tend to mimic to do the same thing as others in order to get a similar result. I think it's urgent that we talk about it, that a debate be had on the subject. So there is a lot there. Uh, So which part do you want to jump in on? What what are your thoughts about just a, a petition uh, going at something like Netflix, is that good grassroots or is it like, you know what, we, we don't need to be pulling uh, shows. You can make decisions what you let your kids watch and not watch. Ugh, this one's messy, man. I uh, I do remember seeing the outcry about the photo and I, I could I could see why that was an issue. So that's one discussion. Right. And they did actually change the promo photo issued sure. an apology, which that feels unprecedented. Like it feels like media groups do not often sort of take ownership. Like, yep, that was too much. We shouldn't have gone. That's not, I, I, I can't think of a time in recent history where something like that has happened, where they listened to the outcry, changed it and issued an apology. So that was fascinating. I'm reading this other article at the daily beast where they're kind of making the case, like what you were just saying, well, the whole, the whole film is to like expose sort of the fear and shame culture that a lot of these children find themselves in and to call it out as bad as, as negative. It's not, it's not glorifying these things again, cards on the table. I have not watched the show. Is it a show or a movie? It's a show, I right? It's a movie. I think, oh. Although if it's Netflix, it's probably broken up, but I think it was a movie at Sundance. I've, I've not seen it. I 
don't think I will see it. So all that said, like I'm just sort of I'm just sort of riffing and guessing at this point. But um, the the director seems pretty adamant that like part of the goal is to expose. I mean, even in the subheading here, it says um, right wingers are accusing. I can't even say her name. Mamami Decor's <laughs> cuties of sexualizing young girls thanks to a bad Netflix gaffe, but the film itself provides a nuanced examination of girlhood. Uh, again, I feel a little loud over my skis on this one because yeah. you and I, you know, we have never been young women. So that's not something that even is like true to our experience. It is interesting that like the the photo issue is probably exacerbating to some degree. Like, yeah, okay, can we can we is there a reality where we can own yeah, the photo was a bad idea, but the film still actually is a good idea or like in your mind, will the film just kind of be forever tainted because this poor image choice was used and you'll never convince a certain majority of people because of that discussion that the content is actually in any way helpful. So let's go to the, to the actual point of what they said they're trying to fight against here, here, I'll let you maybe put on your youth pastor hat or sure. uh, whatever else. Uh, as a dad with girls, uh, it is disturbing just kind of the sexual messages and the social media pressures uh, that are out there that sometimes I don't even know about. How would you mm, counsel might be the wrong word, but what would your encouragements be to parents with girls, especially, but also boys, young kids, say in this early teen or preteen years about social media, about the over-sexualization within our culture. How do we talk about that? What are some safeguards maybe that you'd suggest? I don't think, honestly, that I'm comfortable telling parents how they should talk about it, but more importantly, that they should be talking about it. I think each family and each set of parents needs to make some of those decisions for themselves. I think that we've we've long since created this weird dichotomy, especially like you mentioned in youth ministry, where the youth pastor – who often doesn't have kids themselves right. are like creating these hard and fast rules that every, every family needs to abide by. I think that's probably unfair to everybody. That's, you know, you, you can make, if you need, if you're having some kind of event, some church sanctioned event, I think it's probably within your bounds to create some sort of categories or boundaries, just like you would like, you know, Hey, we're not going to let your teenagers drink at this event. Now, you know, if, if you have them doing that in your house, that's your choice. It's, not legal. Um, but you know what I mean? Like there's, there's certain categories that I think we sometimes expect youth ministry to sort of just like take care of. And, uh, I would encourage families. Yeah. Prioritize having these conversations. And to your point, it's not probably just one conversation. You've mentioned a couple of times on the show, how grateful you are that you have this, like this ongoing relational equity with your kids where you can bring these things up as they sort of crop up because you've done the hard work of like, creating safety where they can bring questions and doubts and like, Hey, I heard this at school or I saw this online, but I, yeah, I'd be more curious to know what you've done because you actually have kids at these age. Like are there hard and fast parameters and rules and guidelines that are sort of like universal for all your kids? Yeah, it's, there are certain ones like we all, we always have uh, no questions asked access to their phones. Uh, now uh, can, can kids of that age get around stuff that their parents don't know about? Probably, but, uh, but, but we've got that rule, but man, uh, the hard part about these conversations is just, you get so lost in your day in and day out that you just forget that these are issues. Uh, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it's, 
I don't mean that not too late, but then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wait, we've got this issue, anything from Instagram to just what they're being bombarded with. And so I think what you said is really important. There needs to be an open line of communication from early on. Uh, you know, if you go to your 16 year old daughter and you should do this if you haven't had these conversations before, but it's a lot easier if you've been having conversations along the mm. way to continue having them. Now, I would say if you're like, man, I haven't been having them along the way. It's going to be awkward, but do it anyway. Like, go have the conversations. But understand that our children, and especially our girls, but our children, our boys too, are being raised in a in a, in a culture that even me at the age of 43 wasn't raised in. Like, yeah. uh, between social media and right, the amount of right. information and the, the, the stuff that's on TV, whatever else it might be. I'm not being alarmist. It's just different. Yeah, and different. so, parents out there, you need to educate yourself. You need to become aware of what's out there. And you just need to be having these conversations with your kids. Uh, don't hope that your youth pastor will one day have a talk or other people. Like, that's part of what it means to be a parent. And so, uh, we'd love to know some of your strategies out there. Also, what you think about this conversation around uh, this movie, Cuties, that is coming out. Well, coming up next uh, at Nine Marks, Jonathan Lehman writes about pastors on social media. We're going to talk pastors and social media next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Well, over at Nine Marks, ninemarks.org, Jonathan Lehman, he's the editorial director of Nine Marks, uh, he wrote an article back at the end of June, but it it, uh, it it still works for today. Pastors on social media. Pastors on social media. Tell us a little bit about what Jonathan wrote here. Well, I just I'm just finding out that pastors are on social media, Brian. This is this is brand new to me. This is going to. I'm very... just finding out about this thing we call social media. <laughs> Touche. Okay, pastors on social media by Jonathan Lehman. Here we go. On a recent Zoom call with half a dozen pastors, one raised the vexing topic of social media. Several of his members had urged him to speak up more in response to racial tragedies that had consumed the nation in previous weeks. Quote, I'm not sure what to say or do, he repined. His own thinking about the incident and its aftermath were still in process. Plus, did he have a responsibility to speak out on social media? Was he complicit in the injustice if he didn't speak out? A lot of people had been pointing to the quotes of Martin Luther King Jr. and Elib Weissel saying as much. Another pastor immediately sympathized. Some of my members want to hear more outrage from me. Others want to make sure I don't sound like an echo of mainstream media. He shrugged his shoulders. I don't think I satisfy either group. You and I, by the way, have felt that with this show, I'm sure. Uh, Knowing how to pastor in the age of social media can be bewildering. We feel its opportunities and its perils. We can encourage dozens or even hundreds of people with a tweet, but we can also pick fights we didn't mean to pick. We can stir up foolish controversies. Apparently, we can even lose our church building by favoriting the wrong thing. That is a reference to a story we did a couple months ago. Yet the topic cannot be avoided. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram are today's watering holes, taverns, and town squares. As far back as 2013, 70% of Christian millennials read their Bible on their cell phone or the Internet. 56% would investigate a church's website before attending, and 59% sought spiritual content online. It's not surprising, therefore, that 85% of churches use Facebook, 84% of pastors say it's their church's primary online communication tool, and 51% of churches say that at least one staff member regularly posts on social media. Church consultants insist that your church must exploit social media because it helps people find you, builds community, I would put an asterisk under community there, displays Mm -hmm. your church's vitality, 
meets people where they live, sells your ministry products, provides a venue for announcements, helps you uh, educate and disciple and so forth. And it's not just low church evangelicals who use social media. The Church of England asked members to post photos of Easter celebrations with the hashtag Easter Joy. Pope Francis invited his 18 million Twitter followers to join him on a, quote, new journey on Instagram to walk the path of mercy and the tenderness of God. So how should pastors think about their own use of social media? And he's going to kind of get into some of the specifics. You were saying this earlier. I don't think this applies just to pastors or even leaders. This is, I think helpful things for all of us to sort of navigate. But I do think there is a unique yes. intensity and weirdness to being a pastor right now because of all the reasons that he just mentioned. The the sentiment that I think I'm upsetting both sides is certainly one that I felt. I don't know if I don't know if you felt that way at all. Oh <laughs> I have felt it so much that uh, I struggle with this one. Like I, I've kind of taken the tack that I don't really weigh in on social media very much. Yeah. And there probably is a missed opportunity there. But this thing that that I'm not sure any of us were prepared for is what am I? You think through it through th- so many layers. OK, I believe this. But what's it say about the church and how do these people react? And it becomes really hard. And I would also say the flip side that I have found almost at least equally as hard as a pastor is what is also my role in uh, in uh, pointing out, maybe pointing out might be a nice way to put it. Things that I think are poor uses of social media within members of my church yeah, and right. the way they use it. And what are you supposed to do there too? So yeah, man, I, I find social media and pastoring maybe to be near the top of the list of most difficult things to navigate uh, right now. Uh, and I don't, it's not going away. It's certainly yeah. not getting any easier, especially as we move towards this election. Well, and I think it's worth noting too, because social media has become, as the adage goes, sort of just the water we swim in. He offers five unique features of social media, which I think are really helpful because a lot of times when you, you know, they talk about, I think it's Dallas Willard, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Like you can become so familiar with something that it actually just becomes like background noise. And these things may seem obvious when you read them, but like it's easy to kind of forget. So I, I, re- I would really love to get to the five because I think they're fascinating. Uh, the first he says is it, is it puts a printing press into everyone's hands. Social media places a Gutenberg press in the palm of everyone's hands, the smartphone. It uh, democratizes the publishing industry. It levels the playing field. Your personal Facebook post appears right next to the New York Times's. The disgruntled church members tweet right next to the president's. By their appearance in the feed, no tweet or post possesses more intrinsic authority than the other. All offer an equal claim to defining reality. A woman might spend years earning a PhD in a field, but one clever word of snark from the man who has read one article on the topic divides the crowd and leaves her looking frivolous. I think that is a fascinating observation and one that is has all sorts of other implications that we won't get into right now. Absolutely. It promotes, number two, it promotes self-expression. While newspapers have long made room for an opinion page and editorial, social media exists almost entirely for the purposes of self-expression. Hmm. I post or tweet in order to tell you what I think, I feel, I believe. It provides a venue uh, in which people share about themselves more broadly, from photos of family vacation to a list of schools one attended. Not only is a printing press in everyone's hands, everyone gets to write their autobiography. Only this autobiography, oh man, is live, moment to moment, and real time. That's mm. that's powerful. All right, number three, it removes pre-publication accountability. I've thought about this one before. Like every other medium of communication and publishing, social media offers accountability. Say something stupid or wrong, and you will be hounded by the mob. You might even be canceled. 
But what's mm-hmm. unique is that social media requires no accountability before the post button is hit. There is no editorial oversight. Every man is his own editor and editorial board. Not only that, the editorial oversight given to books, articles, and newspaper columns demands a time delay. A writer must wait for an editor to read, which means any flash of emotion or cockeyed certainty of 1 a.m. that compel you to write something will have will have had time to cool with the rising of a new sun. Yet, social media allows me to instantaneously announce to the planet every flurry of rage, lust, and disgust. The medium affords no checks. They must come from the user. That's fascinating. Yeah. Number four, it merges publishing with town hall meetings, but with no accountability for the crowd. Hmm. Social media does not merely allow people to act part of as the publisher. It allows the crowd to act the part of a congregational church meeting or town hall meeting or even courthouse. When you speak, the crowd can speak back, offering their cheers or their sneers. But the trouble is the crowd bears no accountability and they remain relatively impersonal. Man, this one's fascinating. What's the last one? Yeah, this last one is maybe the most convicting. It cultivates comparison, legalism, and tribalism. Human beings have always been tempted to wear masks, but they're, I mean, he's talking like hypocritical masks, by the way, but they're yes. best put forward publicly and encourage others to think better of us than we actually are. The structures of social media offer a handy vehicle for these base instincts. The teenager and her Instagram account, the young mom and her Pinterest board, the PhD candidate and his list, is, list of associations on Facebook, the ministry leader and his tweets offering solidarity. In all these places, one can be tempted to manufacture an outward image or to cultivate a pristine reputation that accords with the times, yet it creates a culture of comparison. Another teen sees that account, another mom, those pictures, another would-be intellectual that list, another minister, those affirmations, and they all compare themselves to one another. And I think he kind of goes on to talk about how comparison will often lead to legalism, and then legalism will often lead to tribalism. Either way, wonderful article. I would encourage you to head on over to the Facebook page and read the whole thing because it's great. Yeah, he ends it. One thing is certain, Pastor. God is your first audience. Your church is your second Everything else on the internet is negotiable. <laughs> uh, very interesting article from Nine Marks, Jonathan Lehman. Go check it out at our Facebook page. Coming up next, we're going to end the show with a blog post from David French. That's next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad you've joined us today. On this Tuesday afternoon, we hope you have a great evening. One of the people we reference often on the show, Ian, David French, he has a blog post, uh, a blog that you, I think you've coined it as the greatest name of a blog that you know of, I believe, something to that effect. Is that true? I mean, it's definitely up there for sure. Not only because I have one, but he's named it the French Press. His last name is French. He could have called it, you know, French Fries and and made it like a blog where he just like scorches people all the time. Oh. That's good. Uh, or French toast, same kind of principle. But the French press, for like a a well written kind of digital publication, it just it works on so many levels, and I uh, I can't I can't stop thinking about it, Brian. <laughs> That's a good title. Then he wrote here, uh, "The deep breath before the plunge." Thoughts from the precipice of profound political conflict. I'm going to read just some of this. Okay, it, I, I'm going to warn you; it's pretty long. So if you want to read the whole thing and anything David French writes, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, it's worth reading the whole thing. So go to our Facebook page and check this out. He writes, uh, he says, uh, we're on the verge of one of the most intense political seasons in living memory, one that will strain our nation's bonds of affection. I'm reminded of a memorable scene in uh, Peter Jackson's adaptation of Tolkien's Return of the King. 
I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> Pippin stands at the ramparts of Minas Tirith. Tirith, there you go. And stares at the coming storm. It's so quiet, he says. Gandalf replies, it's the deep breath before the plunge. Uh, readers know that I often write against alarmism, against the Flight 93 fear-mongering that teaches us that each election represents nothing more than a battle for the very existence of the nation itself. I'm not alone. There are many Americans who are alarmed by alarmism, yet uh, Flight 93-ism endures. It thrives. Last week, for example, the President of the United States uh, told host radio, radio host Hugh Hewitt that if he loses, quote, China will own the United States. He went on to say, you're going to have to learn to speak Chinese. Three days later, he endorsed the view that if he loses, then, quote, America is gone forever. There are two things I believe French writes at once. First, there is nothing about the policies of either the Biden-Harris ticket or the Trump administration that will end America. Bad policy can damage a nation. Certainly, the Trump administration's multiple failures in responding to the coronavirus have done great harm. But history has demonstrated that America can absorb political mistakes, recover, and emerge stronger from the trial. Second, however, it is absolutely true that hate, fear, dishonesty, and corruption can represent an existential threat to our continued existence as a united republic. Flight 93-ism itself presents a danger there is an easily foreseeable potential constitutional crisis that could strain this nation to the breaking point. Suppose that President Trump again loses the popular vote, yet narrowly, narrowly wins the electoral college majority, while potentially uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of mail-in ballots are disqualified. And so uh, let me pause there. He's going to keep going about us being on the deep, on the precipice of a deep plunge uh, what do you think about what he's setting up here? That this is an important election. It's not going to though ruin the country, but that a lot of um, a lot of us, uh, uh, not us, but a lot of politicians right now, which we talked about earlier, are framing this as in like the election that's going to decide going to decide the entire future of our country. Yeah, I think that that's not accidental. I think that's probably more strategic than we realized to try to elevate. And almost sensationalized. I mean, this isn't the first election to be sensationalized either, but there's a billion other like, do you remember when the most controversial thing happening in our world was Tiger King? Like, that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that just feels like simpler times, doesn't it? Like to think about the stuff that's happened since Tiger King feels like an eternity ago. So I realize that's probably you guess, stir in all of that into our kind of general collective emotional state here in the United States. But I also think. He does a good job, and I don't think he's wrong. I think he's consistently written against alarmism, which, you know, for someone who's maybe more prone to being an alarmist, they probably find that frustratingly diffusing. Like, French isn't taking this seriously enough, or he's not as worked up as I am. And I've certainly fit in that category before. I've certainly encountered people that I didn't think were fired up enough about an issue or a topic thinking, you, you know, maybe something happened in the world that, that really boiled my blood and someone's like, yeah, but it's not going to ruin America. I'm like, no one said that, but you should be more angry or upset or fired up about this than you currently are. I can see that being a sort of counter perspective, but I think what, what he is, what he does pretty brilliantly and unsurprisingly is he does thread that needle between He's like, I'm not going to be an alarmist, but I do, I do feel like I want to talk about what this plunge could potentially look like and what it sort of already looks like. Yeah, uh, I just think is is wisdom, and that's hard. That's hard to do, and I think it's probably impossible to do in like tweets and sound bites. I think it's mm -hmm. why so many of his posts 
you know, are kind of long form because it requires nuance that 280 ca- characters just doesn't give you. Yep. He says, uh, I'm not the only one concerned that the chief threat to America doesn't come from a foreign foe or policy proposal, but rather through our deep polarization. He goes on to talk about Lincoln, uh, where Lincoln warned that the greatest danger to the nation came from within uh, all the armies of the world. He said could not crush us. He maintained, but we could still, quote, die by suicide. He added that our dangers are not in our differences. Indeed, here's French. And here's what I want you to think about. Indeed, differences are inevitable. Instead, our dangers are in, quote, the tone, the snarl, the scorn, the lacerating despair. Mm. So I, that's where I want to end us off here. The, we, we've talked a lot about the polarization of what's coming, uh, what's already happening, but it's only going to get worse. We talked uh, at the very beginning of the show today about both conventions, Democratic and Republican, being about the polarization. Uh, but here's how I want to end, Ian, and let you be a little pastoral. What's the opportunity for the church here? How should the Christ follower uh, be viewing this and be living in this reality as our culture gets more and more polarized? I think the word opportunity is a good one because, you know, like the article we read last segment where pastors were sort of confessing, like, I don't know if I should weigh in on this or should I, should I weigh in more intensely? Is my silence complicit? Does that like how to navigate all of that? I think is probably something that none of us feel like we're doing exceptionally well, but I think this was Samuel Johnson. He said something like kindness is in our power, even when fondness is not this idea that even if you just are diametrically opposed to someone, that doesn't mean that like the call into love others as Christ first loved us, goes away. Now there there are certainly some tricky nuances to that because I do feel like sometimes people who hold just like outright bigoted opinions are like, hey, we can disagree and still be friends. Or like, yeah, but the the things that you're like trying to further and give voice to, those aren't just differences of opinions. They're they're denigrating and dehumanizing. And so I do also think there's a, a Christian obligation to call some of those things out if the person is a fellow brother or sister in Christ. But we've talked a lot. I think I think it it is very easy to be right in the wrong way. I think a lot of times we excuse our methodology if we feel like our conclusion is right, as if ah, I'm, I'm just speaking truth, and uh, as if Jesus doesn't also give us a framework for how it is that we are to speak truth. I think that that is a really really important opportunity that the church has, especially in the coming months, to not to not be right in the wrong ways, but to yeah. do so, you know, with with love at the center. I think is paramount. Mm, I, I would. French is going to echo that. Let me read how David French ends this article. I think it's a great way to leave us for the end of today's show. French says, yes, we are in the midst of the deep breath before the plunge. And when the plunge occurs, followers of Christ should be the American community that is both among the most active in the pursuit of true justice and the least fearful and most kind as we face the future. Otherwise, as history teaches us, our own rage may help bring about the very calamities that we fear the most. That's mm. David French. I'd encourage you to read the whole thing at our Facebook page, but it really puts that idea in our mind. How is the church going to be uh, as our culture is increasingly polarized? What role, good or bad, will the church play? Well, we're going to join you again tomorrow from four until six. We're glad you joined us today, and we hope you choose to join us again tomorrow. As I said, again, from four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.